We turn in our Bibles to Exodus chapter 10. Continuing our treatment of this history, we come now to the seventh through ninth plagues. So the seventh, eighth, and ninth plagues. The seventh plague is given in chapter 9. We won't read that one. But we're going to take up chapter 10 where we read of the eighth and the ninth plagues. We take as our text the first two verses of the chapter. We'll read the entire chapter. We hear God's word in Exodus chapter 10. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go in unto Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I might show these my signs before him. And that thou mayest tell in the ears of thy son and of thy son's son what things I have wrought in Egypt and my signs which I have done among them, that ye may know how that I am the Lord. And Moses and Aaron came in unto Pharaoh and said unto him, Thus saith the Lord God of the Hebrews, How long wilt thou refuse to humble thyself before me? Let my people go, that they may serve me. Else, if thou refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow will I bring the locust into thy coast, and they shall cover the face of the earth, that one cannot be able to see the earth. And they shall eat the residue of that which is escaped, which remaineth unto you from the hail, and shall eat every tree which groweth for you out of the field. And they shall fill thy houses, and the houses of all thy servants, and the houses of all the Egyptians, which neither thy fathers nor thy father's fathers have seen since the day that they were upon the earth unto this day. And he turned himself and went out from Pharaoh. And Pharaoh's servants said unto him, How long shall this man be a snare unto us? Let the men go, that they may serve the Lord their God. Knowest thou not yet that Egypt is destroyed? And Moses and Aaron were brought again unto Pharaoh. And he said unto them, Go serve the Lord your God. But who are they that shall go? And Moses said, We will go with our young and with our old, with our sons and with our daughters, with our flocks and with our herds, Till we go, for we, shall, for we must hold a feast unto the Lord. And he said unto them, Let the Lord be so with you, as I will let you go, and your little ones. Look to it, for evil is before you. Not so. Go now ye that are men, and serve the Lord. For that ye did desire. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. And the Lord said unto Moses, Stretch out thine hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts, that they may come up. Upon the land of Egypt, and eat every herb of the land, even all that the hail hath left. And Moses stretched forth his rod over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night. And when it was morning, the east wind brought the locusts. And the locusts went up over all the land of Egypt, and rested in all the coasts of Egypt. Very grievous were they. Before them there was no such locust as they, neither after them such shall be such. For they covered the face of the whole earth, so that the land was darkened, and they did eat every herb of the land and all the fruit of the trees which the hail had left. And there remained not any green thing in the trees or in the herbs of the field throughout all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron in haste, and he said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now therefore forgive, I pray thee, my sin only this once, 
and entreat the Lord your God that he may take away from me this death only. And he went out from Pharaoh and entreated the Lord. And the Lord turned a mighty strong west wind which took away the locusts and cast them into the Red Sea. There remained not one locust in all the coasts of Egypt. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he would not let the children of Israel go. And the Lord said unto Moses, Stretch out thine hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, even darkness which may be felt. And Moses stretched forth his hand toward heaven, and there was a thick darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They saw not one another, neither rose any from his place for three days. But all the children of Israel had light in their dwellings. And Pharaoh called unto Moses and said, Go ye, serve the Lord. Only yet let your flocks and your herds be stayed. Let your little ones also go with you. And Moses said, Thou must give us also sacrifices and burnt offerings, that we may sacrifice unto the Lord our God. Our cattle also shall go with us. There shall not an hoof be left behind, for thereof must we take to serve the Lord our God. And we know not what, with what we must serve the Lord until we come thither. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. And Pharaoh said unto him, Get thee from me, take heed to thyself, see my face no more. For in that day that thou seest my face, thou shalt die. And Moses said, Thou hast spoken well, I will see thy face again no more. We read God's word that far. May God bless his word to our hearts. Again, we take the first couple verses as our text. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go in unto Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I might show these my signs before him, and that thou mayest tell in the ears of thy son and of thy son's son what things I have wrought in Egypt, and my signs which I have done among them, that ye may know how that I am the Lord. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, as we know to the seventh, eighth, and ninth plagues now take place. The first group of plagues had served as that which was necessary to make clear that the gods of Egypt were no gods, but Jehovah was God alone. And you'll recall even the magicians were brought by God to say, this is the finger of God. Exodus 8 verse 19. The second group of plagues were to demonstrate that Jehovah is the God of Israel and that he will preserve his people. And we found in those plagues the distinguishing especially between Egypt and between the Israelites as God made clear that salvation was to come upon his people and that he was the father of those who were his own. And so the plagues affected now the Egyptians but did not affect the Israelites living in the realm of Goshen. Now in this third group of plagues, God brings about the utter destruction of Egypt. And God shows no one can stand before Jehovah. God is the only God. The gods of Egypt are no gods. God is the God of his people and the God of his covenant. But God is God alone. And it's vain to put one's trust in any other power or to try to resist his might. And God demonstrates that here in these plagues when he brings about the utter destruction of Egypt. God is establishing here a sharp contrast between himself as the light 
and evil and wickedness as the darkness. While that becomes especially explicit in the ninth plague, which we'll focus on this evening, we see that already also in the seventh and the eighth plagues here. The contrast between the works of Jehovah as God of light and the works of the devil as the one who is ordering darkness. Now the question is raised, why did God continue these plagues? And it's important that we have a right answer to that question. The purpose of God is not to give Pharaoh another chance. It's not hoping that Pharaoh is going to repent. God here is showing his judgment upon Pharaoh and upon the Egyptians. And God's testifying of the same. We noted in chapter 9, verses 14 through 17. For I will at this time send all my plagues upon thine heart and upon thy servants and upon thy people that thou mayest know that there is none like me in all the earth. For now I will stretch out my hand that I might smite thee and thy people with pestilence and thou shalt be cut off from the earth and in very deed for this cause have I raised thee up for to show in thee my power and that my name may be declared throughout all the earth. As yet exaltest thou thyself against my people, that thou wilt not let them go. That, first of all, God demonstrating his power through Pharaoh. But secondly, expressed here in our text, especially in verse 2, and that thou mayest tell in the ears of thy son and of thy son's sons what things I have wrought in Egypt and my signs which I have done among them, that ye may know how that I am the Lord. God desires that a witness stand in the midst of the world, a witness to our children and to our children's children regarding the greatness of God and his glory. Now God has worked a wonder in our hearts by which we confess to be the children of the Exodus. We witness concerning the majesty, the greatness, the power, the glory of Jehovah God. And we testify to those around us concerning the fact that Jehovah, he alone, is God. We testify to those around us that God will destroy all the workers of iniquity. No one can stand before Jehovah and continue in unrepentant sin. They will face destruction. And so we warn those who think that they can continue unrepentantly in sin. And we set before them the judgments that God sent upon Pharaoh as an illustration and a picture of the majesty, the greatness, and the justice of God. But also, we examine our own hearts. And we repent. We turn from our sin. We acknowledge that no one can stand before Almighty God in their sin and live. And we pray for the grace to know our sin, to confess it, and to turn from it. But as God's children, especially what we look at this evening is the contrast between the darkness and the light and our calling to live as children of the light and to testify of the glory and the marvelous character of that light. What is the essence of that light? Fellowship with God. The wonder that God dwells with us and that he is our God. And over against the works of darkness and the works of the wicked, we are called to show forth that light. And so we look at this passage and these plagues under the theme, Witnessing of the Light. Noting the first two plagues that are referenced here, the seventh and eighth, then the ninth, the darkness, and finally, the light. We see the darkness of unbelief on display here in this history. 
Did Pharaoh know that God was great? Did Pharaoh know that he ought bow before the living God? Yes, Pharaoh did. Pharaoh knew that there was a, Je a God, and he knew Jehovah was God alone. He certainly knew that, as all men know, according to Romans 1 and Romans 2, that Jehovah, he alone, is God, and that he is the one before whom all men must bow. He's the creator, and he's the one to whom we as creatures owe our all. Now, what's the response of wicked men, however? Though they know that, they suppress that knowledge and unbelief. They act as fools. And a fool is someone who rejects reality. Even though they know better, they insist that they're not going to follow that way and they're going to pursue their own will. They refuse to acknowledge the truth. That unbelief, as it's characteristic here of Pharaoh, is that which is seen all around us in the wicked. God will have his glory confessed by the wicked. And God will have his glory confessed by Pharaoh. God will make sure that not only this wicked leader, but all the leaders throughout the world will know that Jehovah, he alone is God, and that they will give him the glory and the praise that is due unto his name. Pharaoh, representing the devil here as the agent of darkness, thinks that he can fight against the living God and that he can experience the victory. Now, God could have immediately destroyed Pharaoh, but God chose not to do that. God ordained the ten plagues in order to display his greatness, his glory, and his majesty. And even though Pharaoh would not acknowledge God's glory through this entire time period, at the end, all men, all the wicked will be required to bow before Jehovah God and acknowledge that he is just and that he is God. But what does this teach us? It teaches you cannot resist the living God and live. All the wicked will perish. And we see that in the judgment that comes upon Pharaoh. Not merely perish from an earthly perspective, but everlasting death is their end. Through these plagues, the horror of sin and unbelief is on the foreground. And the judgments that God sends upon those who unrepentantly continue in sin. The great evil of the devil, as the prince of darkness, is pride. And that pride is on full display in Pharaoh. It's addressed here in verse 3. Thus saith the Lord God of the Hebrews, How long wilt thou refuse to humble thyself before me? Let my people go, that they may serve me. God deals with Pharaoh as a moral, rational creature. And God comes to Pharaoh with this demand. Let my people go. If you refuse, I'm going to send another plague. And so wicked and so hardened Pharaoh is that he convinces himself that he can resist God without consequence. And so what does God do? God sends another plague. And that's recorded for us in chapter 9, verses 22 to 26. Hail, mingled with fire, come on the land and destroy everything that is not already dead. Already the cattle have been destroyed by the various plagues that have come. Now God continues his work of vengeance on the fields. And we know what hail can do. Hail mingled now with fire 
brings about the destruction of all the crops, all the trees. It brings about the destruction of what cattle are left who are exposed now to the storm. Moses lifts his hands up and God responds with a voice of thunder. And fire leaps over the ground as hailstones thunder down with destruction. Trees, homes, plants, animals, all affected as Egypt trembles before the hand of Almighty God. We know how horrifying a storm is. Likely we've never experienced anything like this. We have solid structures in which we can find shelter. Likely the Egyptians didn't know structures like we have. Dreadful is the impact on the Egyptians as the land of Goshen again is exempt. God spares them, but the whole of Egypt now experiences this fierce storm. Pharaoh begins to have objections now increasingly. Increasingly, even among his own close staff, there are those who are saying, Pharaoh, this is enough especially after the next plague, we're going to see that. But he continues to play games. Pharaoh continues to insist, I will set the requirements. I will set the limitations. You want to go. You may go if you meet my criteria and jump through my hoops and meet my conditions. What is Pharaoh trying to do? The wicked say, you want to worship God? Oh yeah, we'll worship God. We'll let you worship God, but you need to worship God the way that we want you to, the way that we would desire that you worship God. And our response is, no. We will worship God in the manner that he requires of us. But Pharaoh tries to control that worship. He tries to say, oh yeah, I'll let you worship, but I'm going to be the one who sets the limitations and the requirements on the manner in which you're going to worship. Rather than worshiping as God requires, you're going to worship as I allow you to. Here's Pharaoh again, esteeming himself as God. God's judgment comes upon him. That's devilish work. That's the work of the devil. That's the devil seeking to control and to limit the worship of Jehovah God by his people and the promotion of God's kingdom. And so chapter 10 now, verses 12 to 15, introduce the eighth plague, locusts. The Egyptian pharaoh continues to lead the whole of Egyptian, Egypt in pride, in destruction. He still refuses to acknowledge God, to submit to God. He refuses to give in to the request to worship. Here's the effect, beloved, of the devil on the world. Absolute destruction. Here's the effect of the devil on the wicked. He destroys them and sends them to hell. The devil takes delight in bringing men and and women down to destruction. The devil is not looking out for the well-being of men and women. The devil is seeking their destruction. Misery loves company. How could Pharaoh do this to his own people? The devil coming upon Pharaoh and now moving Pharaoh to bring about the absolute destruction of the Egyptians. And again, this is the work of darkness. The work of darkness does not care for, does not uphold, does not seek the well-being of those 
who are under its care, but rather they seek about their destruction. And the darkness of the world, again, is seen here in their rebellion and pride. The servants of Pharaoh express their great displeasure. Moses explains what's going to happen. The servants of Pharaoh plead with him, Pharaoh, don't let this happen. Pharaoh seemingly humbles himself, calls back Moses and Aaron, but then still insists on his standard. And therefore, locusts now come upon the land in a manner that had never been seen before. Your children know what locusts are. They're great big grasshoppers. And these grasshoppers have a voracious appetite. And they eat everything in their sight that's green. And Moses insists now they're going to come. Now it's interesting that in the Bible, locusts are used again and again as instruments of the devil or instruments of the wrath of God. They're often compared to invading armies that will come, that can't be numbered, swarming and bringing about total destruction. Darkening the sky, blackening everything in their path, and that's precisely the way in which it's described here. Job, in Job 2 verse 25, calls the locusts an army of God. Psalm 105 verses 34 and 35 rehearse this history. And we read there as the various plagues are being spoken of. Psalm 105 verse 34. He spake and the locusts came and caterpillars and that without number. And it eat up all the herbs in their land and devoured the fruit of their ground. Due to their great numbers, they worked swiftly and they left a desert in their waste. Everything green is destroyed. There's no leaves on the trees anymore. There's nothing green in the fields. Everything is barren. And as Moses said, this is such that had never been seen and would not seen. We hear about and we read about locusts and grasshopper invasions and the destruction that they left and what they experienced. This divine judgment now swiftly comes upon Egypt. And God brings it in such a way that we read that all their homes even are filled with locusts. The significance of that is this. When God speaks about blessing, he talks about the fact that his blessing is such that he fills a man's home with goods. He fills a man's barn with plenty. Now what do we read instead? God's curse comes upon Egypt and God fills their homes with locusts. He fills their barns with locusts so that these creatures are everywhere and there's no escape from them. God demonstrates his power in that Goshen is spared. All is well in Goshen. God demonstrates I am Jehovah and the wicked cannot stand before my presence. In the end time, we know that God talks about the fact that locusts will come again in order to bring about destruction. Whether it will be literal locusts or whether it will be figurative is unknown, but God will bring about the destruction of the world as we know it. The response to this plague finds Pharaoh seemingly on his knees. I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. 
But is this sincere? Pharaoh makes a false confession once again. He pleads for mercy, but there's no change of heart. This isn't a confession of sin. This isn't the spirit of the psalmist who confesses his sin and stands before God in sorrow. It's an admission of sin, but it's not a confession. And there's a difference. Admission of sin is merely the product of a sinful man who knows right from wrong and experiences now the consequences of those wrongs in his life. It's a characteristic of the wicked. All men will be brought by God eventually to acknowledge sin and to face judgment. Confession of sin is the expression of sorrow before God, a sorrow that is godly sorrow, worked by the Holy Spirit, by which the heart is moved to acknowledge one's sin against God and to fall on one's knees in crying out for God's mercy and for God's grace. Pharaoh gives evidence that this isn't sincere and that he continues in his hardness of heart. His wicked ways are not changed. He doesn't say, Moses, you may go. Nothing, absolutely nothing, will change the heart of a wicked man other than the power of God's grace. Man is dead in trespasses and sins. And apart from the wonder of regeneration, there's no hope. The only hope is that the God of grace gives a life that's from above. And that was not the experience of Pharaoh. Immediately afterward, we read, that Pharaoh's heart, again, is hardened. Now, once again, Pharaoh shows himself here to be a fake. He plays around with the religion. He pretends to know the language of religion. He tries to manipulate by making use of that language. Pharaoh wants Moses to take away the plagues. He's not interested in God's forgiveness. He's interested in this plague being taken away and the consequence of it gone. He refuses to let the people go. And we need to take heed to that, beloved. There are times in our life where others around us may put on that show of sorrow, may admit things, but there's no confession, there's no change of heart, there's no sincere sorrow before God. Careful we must be to judge their heart, but their actions will demonstrate it and the fruit will be evident. And we need to also examine our own hearts. Is our repentance, are our confessions sincere? Are they heartfelt? Or are we selfish, merely concerned about the fact that our actions and the actions of others have affected our life? And we want now the consequences to be removed. We're not concerned about our walk with God and our love toward Him. Our confession, beloved, must be that Jehovah God ultimately will glorify his name in and through my life. And regardless of what that looks like and how that may hurt me and how it may affect me, my desire is to turn from sin and to know that I owe my all to him. And I'm willing then to accept and receive whatever consequences there may be as a result of such sin and such rebellion. But God will destroy those who continue unrepentant in sin. And such is the case here with Pharaoh. Eight times the heavy hand of God comes down upon this stubborn, sinful king. And Egypt now is in a deplorable situation. The gods of Egypt are all exposed as no gods. They can't protect and keep Egypt safe. The wisdom of the wise men of Egypt is revealed as foolish. None can help. The God of light 
then proceeds with the most extreme of plagues, darkness. And we look secondly at that darkness. It's an astounding darkness. We read of it in verses 22 and 23. And there was a thick darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They saw not one another. Neither rose any from his place for three days. But all the children of Israel had light in their dwellings. Here we have the culmination, really, of all the other plagues. God sends this horrible darkness, which was foreshadowed in the other plagues. It's the darkness of the judgment of God himself. It's striking that in Psalm 105, a portion of which we read earlier, where we have a record given us of the events that took place in Egypt, this plague is mentioned first. We read there in verse 27, They showed his signs among them and wonders in the land of Ham. He sent darkness and made it dark, and they rebelled not against his word. He turned their waters into blood and slew their fish. Their land brought forth frogs in abundance in the chambers of their kings. And it goes on to express all of the other plagues. But why is it that the ninth plague is put first? With regard to all these wonders and all of these plagues, first listed is darkness. This darkness is the most unique of all darknesses. We've witnessed storms. We've experienced at times the light went out and now there was darkness in our homes. But nothing compares to this darkness. We've experienced the horror at times of darkness, and we know the fear of darkness, but with time, our eyes kind of can get accustomed to it a little bit, and the fear goes away, and we're able somewhat to function. Nothing compares to the darkness here that God brought upon Egypt. This was a darkness that could be felt. And that's astounding. And it's hard for us to understand what that's getting at. There's some that try to say a darkness that was felt must have been due to some kind of things in the air, like a sandstorm or something that was striking their face and hurting them. And so that, that would be the way to understand then this felt darkness. We don't believe that a storm caused this kind of darkness. God did use natural means with regard to the other plagues. But this darkness is far more severe, and it's far greater of a wonder. It was a darkness that was felt because what was felt was the horror of the wrath of Jehovah God. God is a God of light in whom there is no darkness. And what is darkness? Darkness is the absence of God. It is that which is the expression of God's wrath and that darkness now descended not just on Egypt, it descends on the hearts of men. And it works a fear that can compare to nothing else. There was a horror associated with this plague unlike anything that Egypt had ever experienced before. And that horror is such that they now experience wrath, God's wrath upon them. They couldn't see one another. That's the way it's expressed. Now imagine sitting in your home, not able to see one another. Again, with time, our eyes somewhat can adjust and we can start beginning to see there was no adjusting to this darkness. 
It was as if they were struck with blindness, a blindness that resulted in deep fear and terror. God abandons sinners. When the light is cut off, it's felt. And when the light is cut off in that way, if God's abandoning sinners, they don't get used to it. Jesus experienced this on the cross. Those that were present there at the cross experienced, in a sense, this darkness of the wrath of God as it came upon the Son of God as he hung on Calvary. And one could not even see one's hand in front of himself. But that darkness merely lasted for three hours. God was able, Jesus was able to overcome it by his perfect obedience. This darkness remains for three solid days and nights. This is the horror of sin. Sin involves darkness and despair. God's judgment upon sinners is evident. Now it's important that we also understand and know that. What a joy it is to live in the knowledge of light and life. But what is it to experience an absence of God's light and an absence of life with God? To live apart from God is death. And that darkness of death is now the experience. When we walk unrepentantly in sin, we experience this darkness of death. It's been said truthfully, sin will always take you further than you want to go. Sin will always keep you longer than you want to stay. And sin will always cost you far more than you want to pay. Sin involves the darkness of despair, guilt, shame, and death. And such is the horror of sin. As the devil enfolds you in temptation, he draws you away from God, and he draws you now into the ways of darkness. And the devil doesn't care about you. The devil doesn't love you. The devil will cast you off into the depths of despair. But by the grace of God. And our only hope, beloved, in the midst of the darkness of our sin and temptation is the marvelous grace of God. That Jehovah God exposes that darkness. That he penetrates the darkness. That he gives me to see my sin. That he gives me to turn away from that temptation, and that he gives me the grace to know and to believe the wonder of his goodness and mercy as it's in Jesus Christ alone. That Jehovah God frees us from the darkness into which we cast ourselves in sin. If God removes himself from me, from you, there is no limit to how fast we fall and how far we fall. And that darkness enfolds us. But God is faithful and God is merciful. And he preserved light among his children in Goshen. Now before we get to that, we need to note this. The greatest of all of the idol gods of Egypt was Ra, the sun god. They had their god of Nile. They loved and they worshipped the god of Nile. But Ra, that god of the sun, that god was the god whom they adored, whom they worshipped and they praised acknowledging that that God of the sun provided them with their crops. And while their crops needed water, even with water they could not prosper apart from the sun. Suddenly, without warning, the sun God is blotted out. 
Not only the sun, the stars, the planets, the moon, they're gone. Ra is exposed as nothing. Who can stand again before Jehovah? The people trusted in the sun. They offered themselves up to the sun so that it would provide their crops. And now God exposes the folly again of idolatry. Egyptian life comes to a screeching halt. The country is destroyed. Nobody can see each other. They don't even dare move out of their place. And this is the judgment of Almighty God. A judgment now that can be felt. What does Pharaoh do? Pharaoh tries to compromise. He calls for Moses and, Egypt, Moses and Aaron. And again, he doesn't believe God is worth listening to. Such is the pride of Pharaoh. He esteems himself above God, and he still thinks, I'm going to dictate how you're going to worship. The world stands over against God and against his Christ, and the world tries to influence the church in order to get the church to compromise, to get the church to bend to their restrictions and their demands. Again, don't worship God as though he's the exclusive only God. Don't worship God in the way that God requires and God establishes. But God will not allow such conditions, such demands to be set upon the worship of his people. God must be obeyed without delay, without conditions, without compromise. The nature of darkness and rebellion in a sinner is that he may outwardly listen for a time. He may occasionally express sorrow in a superficial way as Pharaoh did. He may even receive those who warn him as Pharaoh did with regard to Moses and Aaron. But he doesn't listen. And what happens with time? He grows bitter, foolish, becomes angry, drives away those who are trying to help him. Those who are trying to expose sin out of love, wants nothing to do with them. Wants no one to disturb him as he continues down that path that leads to death and destruction. Pharaoh insists, Moses, you're never going to see my face again. And Moses said, Pharaoh, you're right. And God will see to it that that will come to pass. But beloved, let's look at the light here. The marvelous wonder of God. And we see that wonder in verse 23. All the children of Israel had light in their dwellings. What a marvelous statement. The land of Goshen is exempt from this darkness. Now what was this light? Was it merely the fact that the sun was shining upon them? Was it a matter that they had lamps in their homes that were providing that light? Note the striking character in which this is worded. All the children of Israel had light in their dwellings. We believe this to be a wonder of God. The light of God was shining in their homes. God's mercy was evident. God made a distinction. Now that distinction was not because they were better or because they had done anything to make themselves worthy. That distinction had nothing to do with them of themselves. But while the Egyptians are cast into utter darkness as the expression of God's wrath, shining within the homes is an expression of light and life, fellowship and communion with the living God, the knowledge of the joy and the wonder of God's goodness and God's mercy. God's grace 
is evident here. God caused his light to shine as God himself is light and in him is life. And without the sun, without the instruments of light, God causes his light to shine in their homes. It doesn't say that there was light in Goshen as though the light was shining from above. But the light is in their dwellings. God is dwelling with them. God is with his people. And God's presence is that of life and light and joy. And nothing can turn that light off. Such as the wonder of the love of God in Jesus Christ. Nothing can extinguish that light, that life. Though we rebel, though we murmur, though we complain, though our sins rise up against us, Jehovah God preserves His light and life within His own. And He keeps them as a witness to His glory, to His power and to His majesty. Even as those who are in the dark cannot turn on the light, so those that are in the light are not able to turn that light off. Jehovah God preserves and keeps. Beloved, this is the wonder of the gospel. God preserving his people unto himself as those who are the object of his love and his eternal mercy. God was with them. And God was with them in their homes as children of the light. Over against the darkness of Egypt, we have the children of light dwelling within their homes, experiencing the communion and fellowship of God. Why? That thou mayest tell in the ears of thy son and of thy son's sons what things I have wrought in Egypt and my signs which I have done among them. What a testimony. What a story to tell your children. To talk about the wonder of that light. The fact that there was utter darkness in Egypt. And yet, God in his faithfulness preserved his light and life in the homes of his own. The country of Egypt is a picture of the wicked world in which we live. And the world in which we live is given over to wickedness. The world is given over to sin. They reject the truth. Pharaoh represents the worldly leaders and rulers as they oppose God. They will not confess God. They will not submit themselves to God. But instead, they esteem themselves above God. That darkness tries to silence the people of God and tries to silence their worship. That darkness tries to keep the people of God enslaved. The devil tries to get people to pick what kind of sex they are and tries to get them to reject the truth and to pursue all kinds of evil ways. The darkness of sin draws men and women into the pursuit of man and the glory of man. But Jehovah God shines his light in the midst of darkness. And he gives us to know the wonder of the redemption that is in Jesus Christ and the power of the cross. He gives us to know that we are not those who are numbered among the darkness concerning whom their end is death and destruction, but that the living God has translated us out of darkness into light that he's given us to know the marvelous power and the wonder of his grace in our lives. 
We've been redeemed by the power of the cross. Now our old man is constantly luring us back into the ways of Egypt. At times our old man says, just stay with Egypt. Enjoy the pleasures. Enjoy the experiences of Egypt. We're tempted to keep our feet in Egypt. Maybe try to keep one foot in Egypt, the other foot in the light. But beloved, we're children of the Exodus. We're those who have been brought out. Those who have been delivered from darkness and brought into the light. And God says, live now as children of the light. And testify concerning the marvelous wonder of that light and life that is yours in Jesus Christ. We see the horror of the darkness. We see the end of that darkness. Revelation 9 talks about, in the subsequent chapters, the darkness and the destruction that's going to come upon the end of the world. We anticipate that these wonders likely are going to affect the world, possibly even in our lifetime yet, as the end rapidly approaches. And as the end gets closer and the pressures of sin and darkness increase and the temptations of the world surround us, the world says, join us. Stay in the enjoyment of the pleasures and treasures of Egypt. Drink your beer. Enjoy your football parties. Live it up. Live for the things here below. Pursue the greed and the, all the prosperity and all of the fame and all the honor that this world has to offer. Beloved, how do we respond? as a witness, testifying of the destruction that will come upon those who pursue the way of darkness. The wicked have no solutions. They try to bring compromises. They want conditions, but death and destruction is their end. How do we witness? Imagine the Israelites and what the Israelites could have done to the Egyptians during this time. During that three days and three nights, they could have robbed, they could have stolen from the Egyptians, they could have taken over the land, they could have sought their own promotion, they could have used that darkness to their own advantage in many different ways and used it to perhaps even stay in Egypt. God would not allow that. Israel had to be brought out of Egypt. But Israel must testify of the greatness and the glory of God. And God calls us to shine forth as lights. In the midst of the darkness of sin, the darkness of unbelief, the temptations of our own flesh, we're to show forth his praise and to live unto his glory. No one can take that light. No one can remove that life from us. The only right to that life and light is the eternal decree of election and the wonder of the cross and what Jesus Christ has done for me. The darkness of Egypt was not satisfying the justice of God. It was a foretaste of the horror of hell. Jesus conquered darkness for the sake of his people. He endured being forsaken of God in order that you and I will never be forsaken. And by God's grace, we go forward as children of the light, those who reflect the life of God in the midst of this world, witnessing concerning God's goodness, the power of God's grace, living as those who warn the wicked, who warn those who are walking in darkness, who testify to them concerning the certain destruction of those who continue in rebellion against the living God. And as those who have been delivered, we look to the wonder of the glories of God and the fullness of the glory 
that awaits. And we worship. We worship as those consecrated to the living God, those called to show forth His praise. And beloved, as children of the light, we cannot keep quiet. We witness to our husband. We witness to our wife. We witness to our children, to our grandchildren, to our parents. We witness to those who are living in darkness, to those who claim to be light but are not living in the truth. And we have a message to tell. The darkness is not satisfying. There's no joy. There's trouble. There's destruction. There's hell. Trust in the living God alone to preserve and to keep you in the enjoyment of life and light. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, strengthen us and bless us. Cause that we might tell of thy wonders, that we might witness of them to our children, to our grandchildren, that we might testify to the world around us, that the world may know this God is our God. And that as the children of light shining in the midst of the darkness, thy grace and the power of thy work in us might be evident as we confess that the difference is nothing of ourselves but all of grace. Bless us and strengthen us, we pray. Amen.